Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. The British establishment don't like rogue princesses. A princess who did things on her terms. And Diana was the ultimate rogue princess. Hello and welcome to episode three of Fatal Voyage, Diana Case Solved. I'm your host, former homicide cop Colin McLaren. In the previous episode, we learned of Diana's years of loneliness and despair during her marriage to Prince Charles. Now we're going to see how she used her fame to fight back. The people were screaming and shouting, Diana, Diana, we want Diana. And that really shook Charles up. I mean, he is the Prince of Wales. He was the Prince of Wales. He was used to being the star of the show. He became more and more with his nose out of joint. He just was not used to not being the centre of attention. And, of course, within a few months, he was never going to be the centre of attention ever again. And in discovering a new purpose to her life, made some very powerful enemies. People were saying to her, you don't know what you're dealing with. Stop putting your nose where it's not wanted. The supposedly fairy tale marriage of Prince Charles and Princess Diana may have been a victim of Charles's infidelity with old love Camilla. Diana struggled with eating disorders, crushing loneliness and affairs of her own. But for Charles at least, there was another cause of tension. The jealousy was quite extraordinary. Charles was used to the attention as being Britain's next king. Here's Diana's personal butler, Paul Burrell. When the royal couple were doing engagements all around the world, the crowds wanted to see Diana, and they would chant Diana's name. And of course, Charles would come back from the engagement and be furious. Why do they want to see you? I married you and made you royal. You weren't born royal. Why do they want to see you? I can't understand it. Suddenly, the princess's star was starting to eclipse that of the Prince of Wales, and he didn't like it. So Diana was sort of following a new route, if you like, because there hadn't been such a popular figure who retained the affection of the British public and the world public while still being a member of the royal family. Nobody expected her to become a world-class movie star in terms of celebrity. Nobody thought she was going to become this incendiary celebrity time bomb that exploded upon them. And nobody was able to handle that, least of all the Prince of Wales. Charles's resentment at Diana's overwhelming popularity manifested itself in what would effectively become a propaganda war against his wife. He had this much bigger PR exercise operating within the Prince of Wales office. It was 
so successful that actually the press bought that, saying that Diana was paranoid. It was very easy to label her as a paranoid schizophrenic simply because that suited the other side. It suited what she often referred to as the beating the Prince of Wales is to. And when you get people like friends of the Prince of Wales, members of the Majesty's government, Nicholas Soames going on national television, and he's a very good friend of the Prince, saying that Diana was paranoid. That's a bit of a heavy hitter. If this was war, it was about to get very dirty. In 1992, the Sun newspaper published Squidgygate, a recorded telephone conversation between Diana and lover James Gilby, in which he affectionately calls her Squidge, or Squidgy, no fewer than 53 times. The recording was a sensation. She comes over on the tape as sort of vain and blasé and unhappy, and it was a really unattractive tape, which made her sound like a sort of unfaithful social woman. And it was very, very deeply embarrassing. The newspaper claimed the conversation had been accidentally picked up by an amateur radio enthusiast, or a ham, while surfing the airwaves. In something of an extraordinary coincidence, a second person came forward, who also apparently accidentally recorded the same conversation. Diana's bodyguard, Ken Worf, remains extremely sceptical. Has some radio ham in his garden shed pick up his conversation. It's quite interesting that, it's worth just touching on that, because that conversation was picked up by him, and then two days later it was picked up by a woman with another radio man called Jane Norgrove. The same conversation. Now, it is my belief, and I said this at the inquest into Diana's death, that that must have been recorded by somebody far more important than some second-hand radio man from his garden shed. Was Charles using the British Secret Services to bug his wife and then releasing their recordings to try to discredit her? It just been so coincidental that you know, he was very, very close to GCHQ, as was Norgrove, Jane Norgrove. She wasn't far away either. Now, it's possible that that conversation was picked up by GCHQ and released on the loop for whatever reason. I don't know what that was. I said this at the inquest, and a representative of GCHQ was brought forth to the inquest to answer the question from the car, you know, did GCHQ record that conversation? Well, you know as well as I do, no government security agency is going to be into anything, so the answer was no. The coincidences kept coming. Suddenly another tape emerged of a conversation between Charles and Camilla in which the heir to the throne expressed some highly X-rated desires concerning his lover. It was this constant sleaze fest that was going on around them, everything about their private life. And then we have the two tapes that get released, one after the other, a tape between Prince Charles and Camilla, where they're having really embarrassing pillow talks that involves Prince Charles saying, I wish I was your Tampax, which is hard to recover from. I mean, I must say that in terms of deadly embarrassment, Charles's reference to wanting to be Camilla's Tampax was a truly epic moment of dreadful, embarrassing personal revelation. The gloves were off, and as the media dubbed the rivalry the War of the Waleses, Diana went on the offensive. I thought it was fairly obvious to anyone who's been reading newspapers in the last five or ten years that one faction talks to one lot of uh, Fleet Street and the other faction talks to the other. Sometimes they both talk at the same time to the same newspaper. 
Of course, it was tit for tat by now, and Diana gave her own version of events in Andrew Morton's book, Diana, Her True Story. Diana then decides that what she needs to do to kind of really get her story out was to give the real story of what was happening in her marriage to Andrew Morton, the journalist who then writes this book, Diana, Her True Story, which in a sense really was Diana's autobiography. Diana, Her True Story was published later that year and for the first time ripped aside the veil of secrecy that surrounded the royal family and laid bare all the loneliness, all the misery Diana had suffered throughout her marriage. It was an instant bestseller. And of course, the revelations in that book were absolutely incendiary. I mean, she spoke for the first time about her desperate unhappiness, how she was bulimic, which nobody had known until then, how Charles had been unfaithful with Camilla, how she had always felt that he loved Camilla, not her, the aloneness that she felt, her attempts to commit suicide, the royal family's lack of empathy towards her in her distress. So you actually have Prince Charles coming down to breakfast when it was published, not knowing what was going to be in the paper that morning and opening the newspaper and seeing this headline in the Sunday Times about Diana's repeated suicide attempts. And he literally was blindsided. Worse was to follow for the future king. Diana also gave an interview to Panorama. She felt as if she should have a say too and the world should really know what had happened inside her marriage. Well, there's no better way to dismantle a personality than to isolate it. So you were isolated? Mm-hmm. Very much so. Do you think Mrs Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. She simply was going to get her story out, and she did, and it was like a, another one of these big firebombs that she lobbied at the House of Windsor. Author and former Vanity Fair editor Tina Brown explains the impact of Diana's panorama interview. It was Andrew Morton on steroids. The book was one horrendous nuclear bomb for the royal family. But when she elected to go on television, on BBC, of all channels, which had always been the big supporters of the royal family, and give this wildly explosive interview to Martin Bashir, where she really did looking tragic with makeup that she'd applied very skillfully with a pale face and dark eyes and looking like a haunted woman. Talked about the agony of being in love with a man who wasn't in love with you and who had always been unfaithful with Camilla. She famously said, of course, there are three of us in this marriage, which became a hugely quoted phrase all over the world. How she thought that Charles wasn't appropriate to be king and how the royal family were out of touch. I mean, this was explosive stuff. I mean, in another century, she would have been sent to the Tower of London and executed for talking like that about the monarch. But she did it, and she did it on BBC, and it was a time bomb. The nation stopped at that time, and over 20 million people in their homes watched Diana pour her heart out. And she looked like a wounded animal. She looked hurt, betrayed, and wounded. And of course, the nation's sympathy went to Diana not to Charles. The royals didn't see it before it went out. They were absolutely gobsmacked to sit there and watch the Princess of Wales essentially talking about the Queen as being out of touch and Charles as being not appropriate to be king. And this was, this was big stuff. So that was an absolute time bomb that shook the royal family to their core and really made it the no going back for Diana. The two of them were at war 
and this was a fierce battle. It did affect the royal family, it did affect the Queen, and I think the popularity of the royal family was on the slide at this moment in time because the Queen does not like royal laundry washed in public. Diana, the fairy tale princess bride who was supposed to epitomise the public love for the monarchy, was now publicly humiliating them. Senior royals were livid. I think for the Queen it was the last straw. That was the last straw. She just thought, this has got to end. I can't deal with this anymore. None of us can. And so she then writes to Diana and says, I am asking you to get now to proceed with the divorce. I was in my butler's pantry one day and I heard this crying from her room and then screaming, Paul, come quick, come quick. So I ran up the staircase and she's holding a letter in her hand. And I could see it had a royal crest on it. And she says, look at this, read it, read it. It was a handwritten letter from the Queen on Windsor Castle stationery with a royal crest at the top. So the letter read, Dearest Diana, having had consultations with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Prince of Wales, I think it's in the country's best interest if you divorce. So Diana said, they've all decided. The Prime Minister, the Archbishop of Canterbury and Charles, they've all decided that I should divorce. This letter was signed, Elizabeth R. It wasn't a request, it was a royal command. Once she separated from the Prince of Wales, there was no sort of rule book to follow. Um, there hadn't been a, such a high-profile royal separation before. Don't forget, Charles is and was the future king. And the idea that the king of England could go to the throne as a divorcee seemed impossible at that time. For the notoriously scandal-obsessed British tabloid press, the royal split was front-page news. The royal family were in this constant mayhem of horrible tabloid vulgarity and press and sleaze. The tabloids stalk them morning, noon and night. They're most aggressive and the most invasive at that time. The royal family also got very angry with Diana for doing that because they felt it was bad enough having all of this invasive press coverage. But some of it was actually stimulated by Diana's desire to leak aspects of what was happening in her war with Charles. And of course, Charles decided the same thing. Charles's camp would brief against her. The tabloids began to be this kind of battlefield for their marriage. And it was one of the most destructive things, of course, that really ended in the ultimate tragedy at the end. Charles was not the only one swearing vengeance. Prince Philip was also furious and, according to Diana, even wrote her poisonous letters. Very much like Charles, Philip was having a hard time. He didn't understand women either. He was quite scaly. Really, I mean, very pretty nasty letters. He did call her names because she shouldn't have been seeing another man, but then source for the goose and source for the gander and all that. But nobody, he never spoke to Charles and said, oh, don't see Camilla. Which they should have done. Somebody should have done that. She was not afraid of them. She was not intimidated by Prince Philip. She regarded Prince Philip as someone who was just bully, who had absolutely nothing to do with what she was going to do in life. She was not intimidated by him. Charles and Philip did have one hold over Diana, however. Prince William and Harry may have been her children, but as second and third in line to the throne, they were royalty first and foremost. She 
was actively concerned. She was fearful that her sons would be taken away from her. There were obvious attempts by people, friends and supporters of Prince Charles, to put around the impression that she was insane or unhinged or unbalanced. This happened a lot to the great discredit of those people who tried to create this impression. And she was really fearful that she would lose contact with her sons, that she would be prevented from seeing them. The order of the day was to undermine Diana. Whether the Prince of Wales could say she was mad, she was crazy, she was unstable, she wasn't fit to have children, whatever his cause was, his people had to listen to it. The royal family wanted Diana just to creep away and hide under a rock. They didn't want to hear any more about her. But that was not Diana's intention. She felt that she had a lot to give to people, that she could offer an alternative to the formality of royalty, if you like. Diana's divorce was finalised on August the 28th, 1996. She was stripped of a Royal Highness title, and despite her status as mother to the future king, her royal security detail was also removed. She would have barely one year to live. Certainly after her divorce came through, first she felt very liberated, but then she felt slightly alone and vulnerable because she no longer had backup of the royal machine to protect her. But of course, she still lived at Kensington Palace and she was bolstered by an enormous settlement, a divorce settlement of 17.5 million pounds. That's about $25 million, I think, at the time. It was an enormous sum of money back in 1996. She was never going to have to worry about money. What everybody wanted to know now was, what would be next? As a beautiful, financially secure, in-demand woman in the prime of her life, the A-list celebrity circuit beckoned. I think you've got to understand, this was a young woman who changed and who changed dramatically from the naive Lady Di who looked up through her hair because she was so shy when she married Charles in 1981. By 1996, she was a confident, mature, dazzling young woman who had the world at her feet. She was welcomed at these huge, fashionable events in New York and elsewhere in the United States where the rich and powerful came to pay homage to her. But she had to find something to do and she had to find a new path. It would have been all too easy for Dana to use her celebrity to live a life of ease and excess. But that was never her way. She was so wounded by her marriage and so wounded by the system that she had to turn it around in a positive force and give it to other people. What I saw was she was giving love to other people unconditionally because she didn't have it in her world. She turned it around and gave it to other people. Diana was was a highly empathetic person that all she wanted to do was make a difference to the world, and she did. Well, of course, Princess Diana didn't pick sexy, very fashionable charities. She picked the ones that had been neglected. She picked the ones that weren't fashionable. So she picked homelessness. She picked HIV and AIDS. Diana's work as patron of HIV and AIDS charities had begun while still married to Charles, and she was well aware of the impact she made on public awareness of a disease that still held enormous stigma. Now she threw herself into the cause. She was the first person to go out helping the 
virus of HIV. She'd hold their hands without wearing gloves because she knew that it could only be passed by bodily fluids. When she went to that hospital in the Middlesex Hospital and shook the hands of an AIDS victim, it was the first time that anyone had seen a person in her position in life just without any inhibition, without wearing gloves, which was measured at the time repeatedly, could actually physically embrace a person with HIV AIDS. And it was the photograph that went around the world and really did a tremendous amount to end the stigma of AIDS. But it also was, at that time, extremely cutting edge. And there were people who felt that this is not what a royal person should be doing. So she was constantly changing the rules and breaking the rules. And I would argue they were absolutely rules that should have been broken. If Dana's work with HIV and AIDS charities was groundbreaking, what she did next would affect the very highest levels of government around the world. For in 1996, Dana's personal friend, Simon Simmons, travelled to Bosnia under the protection of the Red Cross, where she saw firsthand the terrible effects landmines was having on innocent people. Upon her return, she showed photographs of her experience to Diana, who was shocked, and then set about her own call to action. This changed her life. She saw the pictures of the destruction the landmines had done, what they looked like. She said, we can't have that. I said, I know. She said, do you think I can help? I said, well, if you can't, nobody can. She said, good, come on, let's see if I can make a difference. And so she did. But when the campaign got started, in 24 hours, she got the facts and figures of the number of landmines globally, all the ins and outs of everything. Then she took the whole thing on herself. Here's her butler, Paul Burrell. I went to Angola and Bosnia with the princess and she traveled through landmine fields, fields filled with antipersonnel landmines. And we visited people in hospitals who had been blown to bits by these landmines, innocent people, not soldiers. They were victims of war, little children who had wandered into a field to pick up a football or a toy and been blown up. On one occasion, we went into hospital and the nurse pulled down the sheets and this little girl had no legs. And she was very ill. She couldn't speak English and she opened her eyes and smiled at the princess who was holding her hand. And we left the bed and we were leaving the hospital and the nurse came running through the corridor and said, oh, the little girl that you've just seen. She said, yes. She said, she just said in her language, uh, was that an angel sat beside my bed? And then she passed away. So the last person this little girl saw was the Princess of Wales, sat smiling. As the world saw images of Diana walking through war zones in a flak jacket, the impact was immediate and huge. The power of Diana's endorsement to a charity like the Landmines charity was phenomenal. When Diana shone her light onto a charity such as a Landmines cause or HIV and AIDS, it became world news. It was on the front pages of magazines and on the front pages of newspapers. Her power was immeasurable in monetary terms, but it also gave funding towards that charity. It gave them attention and it brought the world spotlight onto that particular cause. Not everybody was so enraptured of Diana's campaigns, however. Diana made a great many enemies too with some of her charities that she picked. 
Some of the charities that Diana picked really rattled the establishment. Her decision to make landmines a cause that she was really going to get behind, which is a very personal connection that she forged when she was really enlightened about how dangerous and how uh, horrible the effects were of innocent people stepping on these anti-personnel mines and ending up maimed and dead in places such as Angola. There may be controversy at home, but the princess's frontline campaigning continued in Quita, thought to be the world's most heavily mined town. She'd been briefed about the political row her visit had attracted, but seemed genuinely taken aback by the criticism, and particularly the description of her as a loose cannon. I'm only trying to highlight a problem that's going on all around the world. That's all. It's been said, though, that you're aligning yourself with Labour policy. Do you think that's wise? Leave. I, I don't know what you're talking about. You're, I, don't, I don't know we, what we you're talking about. We have really to keep the program going. Thank, Thank you very much. Through all her travels, she's never encountered devastation on such a scale. But this is the new working princess, not shy of politically sensitive issues. There were factions around the world who said that Diana was meddling in something she didn't understand because the landmine campaign was worth billions to certain countries in the manufacture of these landmines. And she was getting into very hot political and diplomatic water. But all she saw was that she was helping. She did get threatened. Diana's campaign went beyond simply raising awareness of the effects of landmines. She wanted an outright ban on them, and she was using a huge popularity, celebrity status and political power to lobby governments directly. Michael Mansfield QC, an eminent barrister who represented Muhammad al-Fayed in the inquest into Diana's death, explains how Diana had found herself in dangerous waters. She had upset the political establishment. Of this is no doubt because she was compiling a list of British involvement in the laying of mines. The landmine campaign was an expose of, if you like, the way in which certain British arms firms and British politicians were involved in this trade, since the arms trade is one of the main also one of the main areas of interest for the British industry is right up the top one of the leading exporters that we were at that time. I think there was a concern that she as, as she was seen going to these places very courageously walking through minefields and so on. Never mind her working in other fields. That particularly brought to her head the need to prevent these dangerous items being left for a civilian population to get maimed and pulled as they were. Having seen for myself the devastation that anti-personal landmines cause, I am committed to supporting, in whatever way I can, the international campaign to outlaw these dreadful weapons. She really got behind that charity in a big way, and it really did rattle many of the MPs and so forth who felt this was a completely inappropriate cause for her to be backing. And they called her crazy and they called her uninformed. But actually, Diana was very well informed about all the charities that she was involved with. If you remember when the Lamont campaign was born, 
and look at the number of countries that signed up to the Landmine Proliferation Treaty. They signed up to stop buying landmines. The fact that she made a huge dent in that business affected quite a few people. So I think there lay another area of interest where the security services might get motivated, not just by the fact that Rob Family didn't like it, but British industry and certain elements of the political scene didn't like what she was up to either. Diana's marriage had imploded amid the so-called War of the Waleses, a very public slanging match of infidelity and accusations in which she had aired the royal family's dirty laundry in a way that nobody had ever seen before and which had provoked fury at the very highest levels of the establishment. And now her campaign to ban landmines was also making her some very powerful enemies in government and amongst the shady international arms trade. Simone Simmons remembers one particularly chilling conversation with the princess just months before her death. I had this horrible, horrible sick feeling in my stomach from after she came back from Angola. I said, I got a really weird feeling. I said, something is going to happen that will be the death of you. And I said, just be careful, please. She said, don't worry, I'll be okay. I said, we don't know what we're dealing with. These things are bigger than all of us. I said to her, the arms industry, it's the arms industry. These organisations, if they don't like, they don't like opposition. And they tend to get rid of opposition. I said, something will happen that will be the death of you, and that's that. Look, the landmines, they kill civilians and animals, that's it. And it scares people off. Good way of keeping populations under control. We're talking a multi-billion, or rather a multi-trillion dollar business. You try putting dents in any multi-trillion dollar businesses and you're going to have hell to pay. What I'm trying to say is they've got their own ways of dealing with things and don't forget the big farmer and the oil companies, they are a law unto themselves and they're not answerable to governments or people or anybody. Next time on Fatal Voyage, Diana, case solved. She said, actually, it sounds ridiculous now, as we were sitting there in the comfort of her sitting room in Kensington Palace. She said, but I really did believe, genuinely believe, that someone was going to tamper with my car. She said, I really believed that. She said, I, you know, I was too much of a problem. They wanted to get rid of me. Princess Diana herself believed strongly that she was going to be murdered and she predicted how she would be murdered. She said that she would be murdered in a car crash orchestrated to look like an accident and she very firmly blamed her husband for being behind that plot. 
This was a kind of terrible, toxic mix of motivations that was going around in Diana's head at that time, leading her to do all kinds of reckless things that she shouldn't, namely go back into Paris with Dodie, drive through the streets with him, press knew that she was there, go into the Ritz Hotel. I mean, these are very public places with tons of press around, and it was a madness to be in these kind of venues in the height of summer with Dodie Al-Fayed. Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, is hosted by me, Colin McLaren. Executive produced by Dylan Howard and is production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson and Andy Tillett. The series is produced by Billy Spear and written by Dominic Utton. Reporting by Aaron Tinney and Doug Montero. With additional research by me, Colin McLaren. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz, Sam Adder and Benstown. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, wherever you get podcasts. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.